we are going to uh, read from God's Word, and I'm going to be reading in First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, if you'll stand with me to read God's Word. So, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body to holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the moms. Thank you for uh, just all the blessings of today, the worshiping with the saints, God, the uh, the, the ability to take this moment and, and train our children uh, in the, the truth of your word. And God, now it's our turn to kind of uh, put our attention on what you've said. And God, we, we pray that we would not do that casually or passively, but that we would do it actively and hear uh, with, with uh, God intense ears. Lord, you said, let, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so, God, I pray that that would be our heart today. God, as, as always, I ask that you'd help me in my weakness, God, my frailty, uh, my ineptitude, Lord, to, to preach the word uh, accurately, clearly, God, effectively, powerfully. And, um, God, that you would, at the end of the day, receive glory and receive all the glory for whatever happens next, Lord. I thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we're we're starting um, a new series today. I've kind of resisted. You guys know I you're, usually teach from series, and I've kind of resisted series teaching during COVID nineteen um, because uh, you know just it, it, there's been a lot of things about what's going on in the world. We we felt like Dave and Paul and I that needed to be addressed kind of specifically, and so we were kind of going uh, very. Uh, directly uh, what we heard that week from the Spirit of God to kind of share with you. But we want to kind of be moving back into a more uh, kind of regulated kind of teaching to kind of help you grow from some things. And and so one of the things that that has been on my heart uh, as I've been in quarantine myself is that it's afforded me more time than I normally have with my regular duties to to do a lot of reading um obviously from the scriptures but just some books that have been um collecting on my shelf and and one of one of the things if you know anything about the life of a pastor you know that we always have a stack of books about 20 high that we're trying to work through amen dave is that right so always always trying to just bear through that so i've been able to do some of that and and as I was doing it, even though these were different authors, different writers, these thoughts began to formulate in my mind that kind of resulted in this. So the series that we're going to do is over the next few weeks, we're going to compare and contrast different but closely related 
concepts each week. And you'll understand more what I'm talking about as we get into this. But sometimes the two things that we're going to talk about will be sequential, you know, one right after the other, like union with Christ compared to communion with Christ. Sometimes there'll be things uh, where there's a negative that's compared to a positive, like uh, uh, the assumption of salvation versus the assurance of salvation. Sometimes there'll be things that are parts of a larger reality, like the, the message of salvation compared against the message of the reality of the actual and present kingdom of God. So today we're going to do the most basic foundational thing to Christian thinking, Christian life, and we're going to, to, to compare and contrast two foundational concepts. One would be justification, and the other one would be sanctification. And what were the questions we're going to ask ourselves that you may not have considered, even if you, you know essentially what those concepts mean, uh, I want to ask you these questions. How are those two things similar? And how are they radically different? And, and how, how is this examination going to help us? What I'm hoping is that by taking a look at justification this morning and sanctification side by side in just a few minutes, that will that it'll enable us to better realize, first of all, what Jesus has done for us. And second of all, what he expects of us in the light of what he has done for us. Now, I want to say to avoid any charges of, of somewhat plagiarism. I told you that some of these things were born from books I read. And this, there's a large portion of this message that I owe a great debt to, to a man long since dead who wrote a book 150 years ago called Holiness. And his name was J.C. Ryle. He was a bishop in the Church of England. And if you ever have anything fall into your hands that J.C. Ryle wrote, read it. Don't put it on your shelf, read it, because it will dramatically impact your life. And so in this book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle does a similar comparison uh, in chapter 2, and I found it invaluable to kind of help me put these these concepts into, into uh, the right frame to compare. And this is important. What we're doing today is important. It's not abstract. It's not theoretical. It's important because modern Christians rarely bother to ponder justification and sanctification and what they mean. What we do in the modern world, and this is reflected in a lot of preaching, it's reflected in a lot of the books that are being written, is we take everything, all of these concepts, and what we do is we just lump them into this one category and we call it salvation. Amen? Uh, it, it really, that's what we do. We just say this is salvation. But there, there's some distinctness that you need to understand about that. And, and this, this lumping them together like that is not wise. It may be easy, and, and you may think it's efficient, but it's not wise. Because see, what happens is, when you understand justification as the Bible presents it, it is going to fill you with peace. And when you understand sanctification as the New Testament, as the Bible presents it, it is going to fill you with direction. You're going to know what the next step is in your life. Anybody ever need that? And so we're going to define, uh, to begin with, these two concepts. Let's start with justification. Simply put, justification is the process by which sinful human beings, if that... If you are included in that category, would you do me the honor of raising your hand? I will raise both, as I say often. 
sinful human beings, what justification does, it allows sinful human beings to be made acceptable to a perfectly, unflinchingly holy God. And that's the beauty of justification. When I say that, do you see why justification and understanding it would give you peace? You have, if you are not justified, you have no reason for peace at the thought of God. The only thing that you have the right to do at the thought of God, if you are not justified by Him, is to tremble with fear. Because you are not friends with God if you are not justified with God. You are not a child of God if you are not justified by God. You are the object of His wrath. Amen, Mahalia, you're right. Keep it coming, girl. Jesus, this, this is how justification works in a very kind of basic form. Jesus Christ lived as the Son of God. He took on humanity and lived a perfectly righteous life. No little boo-boos, no mistakes, perfectly righteous. And, and though you and I, we just admitted it, are corrupted to the very core by our sin, if this is what justification says. If we trust in Jesus... If we believe that he had the power to, to alter our course, that if we just trust that, if we just believe it, then Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will impute to us or grant us all of the credit or the merit for his perfection. That's awesome. Because he says, you are a sinner. I am a savior. I am righteous. You are unholy. But I will trade with you. I will give you my righteousness if you just believe in me. That's justification. Moreover, because God's justice, he cannot flinch at sin. Because God's justice demanded payment for all of the sins we committed, Jesus, who again was perfect, took all of God's holy punishment for all of our wrongdoing when he was our substitute on the cross. That was not the cross of Christ. It was the cross of you and Jesus took it for you. Paul puts it like this. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. It was through the vehicle of Christ that God was bringing the world back to himself. And it says that he was doing this by not counting their trespasses against them. Thank you, Jesus. God's wonderful plan from the very beginning, from before the Garden of Eden, was that that he was going to win back his wayward wandering creation through the death of his son, Jesus. And this means, this is where, you know, you want to know what's in it for you? This is what's in it for you. That the very worst of sinners and the very worst of sins can now and only now be forgiven. The worst sinners can be forgiven no matter what their crimes, no matter what baggage you brought into this morning. You can be forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ. And all believers, every one of us, there's no exception to this. Nobody was born a good little boy or girl. All of us were once the sworn enemies of God. And we lived under the specter of His wrath. But now, because of the blood of Jesus, we've been brought near to Him. And Ephesians lists out this terrible list of what we used to be. It says once we were separated from Christ, once we were alienated from the people of God, we were strangers to all of God's promises. God's promises held no benefit to us outside of Christ. And and it said that we had no hope and that we had no God to call on. But because of His great mercy... 
What God did is he looked at all of us in our terrible sinful state. And you know what he did? This is going to blow your mind. God adopted us. Criminals, rebels, fugitives, and he adopted us. So we went from being outcasts to literally being sons and daughters, joint heirs of Jesus, sons and daughters of the living, holy God. And all this happened... When, if it's happened in your life, it happened not through some religious ceremony. It happened simply because you trust in, you cling to, and you rely on the God that makes it all possible. The Bible says, you're all familiar with the first part of this verse, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Earlier we said that that includes us. But then that very next verse says, And those same people when they trust in Christ, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is through Christ Jesus that you who are sinners, who fall short of the glory of God, are now justified by grace because of Jesus. You did not earn salvation. If you think that, you are under a lie. You didn't earn it. It is a gift. You can never be good enough to impress God. God has never looked at you ever and said, oh, I'm impressed. Never. God never said, bravo. That's exactly the kind of spunk I'm looking for. Never. You can't impress God. You can't manipulate him by your good deeds into loving and forgiving you. God has never cared to look at your resume. His mercy is freely given only on the basis of His perfect goodness and never because of a teaspoon of your own goodness. Never. Being a perfect Boy Scout, being Daddy's little princess holds no sway with God. None whatsoever. But you know what does? Believing in Him. Trusting in Him, clinging to Him, saying, I am throwing myself on the mercy of a very good God. To be justified means because and only because of Jesus' death, God reckons you. When he, when he does His calculation in His book, He reckons you righteous because and only because of Jesus. And, and not just kind of righteous. When He looks at you through Jesus, He reckons you as perfectly righteous. Think about how amazing that is. He found us. He didn't find us cleaned up. He found us in our sin, and usually the worst of it. He found us in our sin, and we all know, if we're honest, that we still wrestle with a fallen nature every single day. But those who are justified by God through faith in Him, and in faith in His grace, are viewed by Him as holy. Now I want you to think about this last week. Seriously. Because I'm not dumb enough to believe that any of you in here made it through the last week without any blemishes on your record. Remember that word you said? Remember that website you visited? Remember all, all the, the things, that, that uh, you, the attitude that you had of hatred in your heart towards people? Remember those things? Oh, I didn't do anything that bad. Oh, do you remember when you were coveting? Do you remember when you were gossiping or slandering? Remember all those things? All of them make the list. Remember those things? It's amazing to to think that even with those things in us, 
that if we are truly justified, that God views, listen to me carefully, because most of you will not believe this if you don't, aren't immersed. If you're not baptized in your Bible, you will not believe this. Even with all of that stuff, God looks at you and he, his, he, he looks at you and he says, perfectly holy because of the justification that is in Jesus Christ. Think about last week. We can't know it. We can't read your mind, but think about it. And think about a God who would look at all that, know it's there, and say perfectly holy, completely unblemished, one who is clothed in the actual righteousness of Jesus Christ. How blemished do you think the righteousness of Jesus Christ is? None. None. You've never seen perfect purity and holiness like that. And that's how God, through Jesus, views you. That should humble us all, draw us to thankfulness like nothing else, should blow our minds. So only trusting in God's goodness enables us to be justified. And and because of this, some people struggle to understand, once we're justified, what is next? They know, as I've just said over and over, they can't be perfect, they can't earn God's favor. So what bearing now, on this side of the cross, what bearing does the holy law of God have on us after we're believers? Do we need to have any expectation or any responsibility to obey or to change or to improve in this life and if we do how how are we to do that if we're facing our imperfection and our and our weakness and this is where our next concept comes in what the bible calls sanctification sanctification is different from justification in that it's the way a believer is separated from actual sin the, the things you struggle with every day, the things that you, the pollutions that you still find in, in you. It's the way that they're separated from actual sin and the way they increasingly reflect the righteousness of God. See, God, this is what I want you to understand. And this is where we're at a critical juncture in American theology, not biblical theology, but American theology, that God does not rescue you from the world so that you can keep wallowing in death and immorality. That should have gotten a whole lot louder amen than that. God did not save you from this world so that you can continue to wallow in death and immorality. God saves us not only from hell. He didn't only save our souls from hell, but He saves our life from the love of this world and from slavery to the flesh and the devil. And that is sanctification. See, the Bible, when it talks about sanctification, uses words like growth, like washing, like shining, and producing fruit to describe what comes after we are justified. One of the most dangerous heresies in the world, and it is rampant in the church of today, is that you, is that is for you to believe, this is a dangerous heresy, for you to believe that you can say a prayer at one point in your life. Or that you can be dunked in a baptism tank, etc. Whatever religious thing you want to fill in there. And then live exactly the same way as before and expect to go to heaven when you die. Many of you are going to stand before God having checked something or several things off your list. Only to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. And why is that? Because justification is only verified by our progress in holiness. 
Jesus said, I can prove this from the Bible, that, that the, the importance of this progress in holiness. Jesus, this is the Son of God himself, said, you will know them by their fruit. He said, you must be born again. James said, I will show you my faith by my works. Faith apart from works is dead. The writer of Hebrews said, to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And then Paul said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? All of this, all of these writings and hundreds others portray progress. They portray change. They portray renewal. But how does this progress, this change and renewal occur? Well, let's go back to to Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle. He listed several ways in which justification and sanctification are similar, including the fact, this is the first fact that you need to know about justification and sanctification. The the first fact is that they all originate in the free grace of God. What do I mean by that? A person who is not first justified by grace can never, will never, won't ever muster the strength to see his life sanctified. Never. You will never put any distance between you and actual indwelling sin if you are not first justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to please God, grace will be the driving force. Both justification and sanctification also begin at the same time. What do I mean by that? As soon as a person truly believes, they are not only counted righteous through justification, but they actually begin to change the moment actual belief happens. That doesn't mean that they're instantly perfect. Doesn't mean that they'll ever be perfect, but there is a change. Can I prove that to you? The shortest converted life we know of from Scripture was the thief on the cross. And think about what he did. He's dying for sins that he was guilty of. He even admitted that himself. And, and he turns to the other thief who is, who is um, cursing Jesus. And what does he say? He says, stop it. Don't you know that we're receiving the just reward for what we have done? He, what is that indicating? That evil, wicked man's heart is changing. Why? Because he's put his faith in Jesus and says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It, it happened, they were, in, they were together. It happened at the same time as soon as justification happened, sanctification began. <coughs> Excuse me. As soon as a person believes, they're not only counted righteous, but they actually begin to change and they take on the image of Christ. It may at times, this is where you're saying, oh no. It may at times, listen to me, take comfort in this fact. Your sanctification may at times seem imperceptibly slow. But change is occurring if belief is truly present. Both justification and sanctification, listen, you may have never heard this from a pulpit before, but both justification and sanctification are necessary for salvation. Your justification alone will not get you to heaven. It won't. Now, I'm going to explain that in a minute. If you think I'm preaching works righteousness, I'm not. Take a deep breath. But though perfection in this life is not attainable, no one will enter heaven, listen carefully, with an unchanged heart and an unaltered walk. You will not enter heaven that way. As I said, sanctification proves justification. Justification deals with us as persons. It looks at the whole person. It says, I count you righteous by the grace of God. 
It delivers us from actual guilt to be accepted with God. But sanctification goes deeper. It deals with our natures. It morally renews our hearts and our motives and our emotions and our actions. And as such, justification is an internal work that maybe no one will ever see except God. You may, you may look at me and you may never have full confidence that I'm justified. But see, sanctification is different. Sanctification is an external work that everyone can see when it's legitimately happening. Here's your first application, your first homework. If you want to know if you are being sanctified, ask your spouse. Don't go to Jesus and say, am I being sanctified? You can do that, but ask your spouse. Parents, ask your children. Children, ask your parents. Am I being sanctified? Ask your friends, ask the people that are watching you at work. Is there a change in me? Am I, am I different than I was yesterday? Justification and sanctification are also different in several ways. First, justification reckons a person righteous before God, although they will certainly still sin. As I said that earlier. But see, sanctification actually, actually transforms their thoughts and action to become actually righteous. So that the deeds of my hands, the words of my mouth, the thoughts of my heart are actually righteous slowly and by degrees. Not perfectly, but slowly and by degrees. And furthermore, the righteousness that justification produces is not our own. We would all agree with that. I'm not righteous because I'm a good guy. I'm righteous because Jesus made me righteous. He clothed me in righteousness. But but what's different, that's in justification. But the righteousness that we obtain through sanctification, listen to this, is our own. What do I mean by that? Though though it's worked in us by the Holy Spirit's power, we couldn't do it without Him. It is something that is, it's the fruit that's produced by our life. Yes, it's mingled with weakness. Yes, it's mingled with infirmity. But it is our righteousness. It is what God is producing to change us. Not so that we can brag and boast and say, well, I'm better than Paul Brooks at least. No one, not so that we can do that. What he's What he's doing, the reason God is doing that in us is so that we can get glory. He can take a nasty old sinner like Mark Sharp and make him, in some sort of way, a a vessel of his glory. Wouldn't you like that for yourself? To take the worst that you know you can be and be turned into a shining reflection of the glory of God. What an amazing thing that would be. In justification, our works, all of our doing, all of our religion, all of that is absolutely of no value. But in sanctification, the Bible actually encourages us on different places to fight, to watch, to pray, and to labor. That's what the difference between justification and I cannot bring my works to God and say, justify me. He'll look back and say, your righteousness is as filthy rags. But then in another place it says to those who are justified that God is not so unfaithful to forget your labor. Justification is a finished and complete work. It never increases. It never grows. I asked our small group the other day, how saved are you? On a scale of 1 to 10, there is only one right answer, and that is 10. You can't be One day saved to seven, one day saved to ten, the next day saved to four. You are always saved as you are ever going to be. A person is as justified when they first come to Christ as they will be the day they die. 
and all throughout heaven. But sanctification is different. It will not be completed in any of us until we see Christ face to face. It is a progressive work. It expands and it grows in us all of our days. It's imperfect sometimes because of our sinfulness. Sometimes it advances, sometimes it retreats, but it's always there and it's always producing fruit. There's a crisis that's prevalent in American churches and it manifests itself in this way. When we focus too intensely on the act of initially believing. You've all seen this before in the culture. You've all seen it in churches. That that, that there's this intense effort to get you to initially believe to come down to the altar, to pray, to, to you know repeat a prayer after me, all of that stuff. But what happens is if we put too much emphasis on that, we neglect to give attention to the transformation and growth that happens after we believe. And in our text today, Paul, if you don't mind my graphic language, puts a bullet in the head of that kind of thinking. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now think about that. Oh God, tell me your will. I want to know your will. Okay, be sanctified. God desires your growth. And listen to me, I'm going to say something very blunt, very direct, very strong, maybe even painful. But you are required to question your claim to faith if you're not daily becoming more like Jesus. You have to. You have to. That doesn't mean, please don't misread me. I'm not saying that everybody has, you know, always this continual progress. But if you have looked at your life and you've been stagnant since you allegedly believed, you are not a Christian. You are not a Christian. You must grow. You must change. You must uh, increase and become more like Jesus. Paul gets real specific here about what sanctification looks like. If you're wondering if you've changed or not, he says this to the Thessalonians, abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. It's a difference. Why is our life different? Because we know God. And and that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Now, I'm not going to focus on that. His focus here is on sexual purity. And you think, okay, good, I can check that off my list. I'm pretty pure sexually. But in other places like Ephesians 3, just in Ephesians 3, he says that that he says similar things and he addresses lying. He addresses unbridled anger. He addresses theft. He addresses filthy talk. He addresses bitterness. He addresses unforgiveness as areas where change should be evident in the Christian life. And who here can raise your hand and honestly say that you don't struggle in any of these areas? Now listen, we've said it over and over in this message alone. None of us are perfect. And so there's always plenty of space, plenty of margin for us to pursue the holiness of God. And as the Bible puts it, to die to ourselves, to our desires. So why should we take sanctification so seriously? Because in the Bible, throughout the Old and New Testaments, it's not limited to one or the other. It says, be holy or you shall be holy because I am holy. So what's the, expect- what's the expectation of God? Talk to me. What's the expectation of God? Be holy. Be holy. Holiness. We must strive. There's that work word again. We must strive to conform our lives to the holiness of God. And even in our text, Paul reminds us, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. 
softly and tenderly. I, I, I love bringing up that song. Jesus is an avenger in all these things, is what the Bible says. The Lord's an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. Sanctification, I'll say it again, probably the fourth time in this message, confirms justification. Do not be deceived. No one is going to enter the presence of God in the last day who neglects the purity of his or her soul in this life. In in the book of Hebrews, it says these words, strive for peace with everyone. And listen, and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So if you think because you said a prayer got dunked in a tank 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years ago that you're on your way to heaven, think again. Holiness is the evidence of a change in you that will bring you into the presence of God. Being morally upright, now I want to say this because there's a lot of things that I said in here that could make you think that I'm saying some kind of message of works righteousness. I would never do that. Those of you who have been around for the five years I've been pastor should know that. But listen, I want to be clear. This is an absolute, engrave this in stone. Being morally upright can never save you. You can't come to God and say, well, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to do it all right. And, and then you'll, you'll be obligated somehow, Lord Jesus, to save me. Listen to me clearly. Only believing by faith in Christ and his work will save you. Nothing else will. But increasing holiness is the only evidence that you have that belief has actually taken root in you and you are saved. In John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, he wrote in the 1600s, one of the the biggest points he makes in that book is that if you are neglecting to, to put to death the sin in you, you have no basis for a clean conscience before God. And so you should prepare yourself for a great surprise at the end day. Your your evidence that you are saved is the increase of holiness in you. It proves that something has taken root in you, that justification has happened. Justification can't happen by your good works, but your good works in the end point to your justification. God's command has never been for us simply to believe, but also for us now that we have believed to live a life of obedience because you've believed. Now, if I if you say to me um, that uh, there's a flood coming and and you come by my house and and uh, you know the water's rising and you bring a, a raft and you say this flood's going to be uh, you know growing and it's going to consume your house and you better get in the raft or you're going to die and I say I believe it. I believe it. I'm going to go binge Netflix. Do I believe what I just heard? Of course not. That's easy. Of course not. And yet people all over the world are hearing uh, people say, just believe in Jesus and and, uh, don't worry, don't give any thought to the life that you're living right now. And, And the belief in Jesus cannot be proven by anything but getting in the boat of holiness. It cannot be proven by anything but by getting in the boat of holiness. And can I tell you something? You're not trying to prove anything to God because God knows everything. You're not even trying to prove anything to me because it doesn't matter. You know who you're trying to prove it to? Yourself. The Bible talks a lot about cleaving to or clinging to a clean conscience. 
And as long as, as you ignore the, the voice of your own heart that says, repent of this, change, transform through the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot have confidence in where you're at with God. Belief and obedience can't be separated. The Bible says, for God has not called us to impurity, or for impurity rather, but in holiness. Holiness requires submission to God's righteous commands. And then Paul ends the passage we read today. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this, this instruction, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Listen to me carefully. It's, a, it's one thing to know what your boss wants. It's one thing to know what your spouse, your mama, your daddy want. It's, it's one thing to know what I as your pastor want and blow it completely off. But only a fool of the highest order would tell God to shove off when he tells you what his will is. When he tells you what he wants. But when we neglect holiness... Actual, practical, day-by-day growth in Christ, growth in grace. When we neglect it, that's exactly what we're doing. Telling God to take a hike. And in reminding us to pursue holiness, I don't know if you picked up on this, but God is described as the one who gives his Holy Spirit to you by Paul. Why is this? Because God... Listen to me carefully. If you are truly a believer, if you've been justified by the grace of God, you have the Holy Spirit resident inside of you. Amen? Amen. How many of you here in this room and you on Facebook, how many of you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you right now today? Have you ever asked yourself why you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? The Holy Spirit lives inside of us to guide us into righteousness. It's a high crime to ignore, to deny, to quench, and to grieve him as he disciplines us and shapes us towards his holy will. A high crime. The Holy Spirit's presence is also, this is the, that, the way I use the word discipline, and it sounds all harsh. Listen to me carefully. That's, not, that's only one side of the coin. The Holy Spirit's presence is also for the rich supply of joy for us in our obedience. And it's, it's great to, to submit our lives. The only way to really have joy and peace in this life is to submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I love the way the Apostle John said it in his uh, first epistle. He said, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. He's saying the same thing I've been saying all day. You want to prove you love God, keep His commandments. And then he says this little thing to encourage us. He says, And His commandments are not burdensome. Because of the lust of our flesh, we look at what God, uh, God commands us and we go, oh gosh, that's too much, I can't bear that, that's too heavy. And, and, and John says, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're forgetting, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the grace of the Lord Jesus. His commandments are not a weight to you, they're not a burden to you. His commandments are liberty and joy and freedom and peace for you. So let me ask you, church, do you want joy in serving Christ? One, two. Anybody want joy in serving Christ? It can only be found not when the worship is just right, not when I preach in my given time slot, not when you win the lottery. Joy in serving Christ can only be found in a submitted, obedient heart. 
We've been saved by the grace of God. And who can say hallelujah about that? But don't forget that we who have been saved by the grace of God have been given everything we need to follow and obey Jesus' word by that same grace. As believers, we have God's own Holy Spirit residing in us to uphold us, to convict us, to guide us, to protect us. So let's not be satisfied to assume ourselves justified. I checked that off my list. I said my prayer. I took my dunk. Let's not just assume that we're justified by those things. Let us daily, no, moment by moment, let us cling to the Lord. Let us surrender our thoughts and our actions to his saving power as well. Sound okay? Y'all with me? So everybody, we're about to take communion. Everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want to ask you this morning, as a way of application, to take two steps. I want to ask you to really painfully, it's a terrible way to invite people to do something, but I want to say that word because I know that this process can be painful because of the idols we cling to. But I want you to... uh, Carefully and painfully inventory your heart and ask God what are the things right now, not some theoretical things, not some, you know, I don't take good enough care of the environment, things like that. I'm talking about real, actual, daily things that you are right now choosing above growth and holiness. Where have you said to God, no? And where have you said to God, not yet? What is it? I'm not asking you for a big dramatic show. I'm asking you to know the state of your own heart. Now in the light of those things, I want you to do one more step. I want you to ask the Lord this question if you are convinced in your heart that you are justified, I want you to ask the Lord, where is it that I have changed? How am I different this year than last, this month than last, this week than last, this day than last? Where have you embraced the change that God is giving you? And then I want you to Take those two thoughts. I really do want you to think about that because if you're really saved, you've really changed. It may be small, maybe nothing that anybody else in this room could perceive, but you know it. But look at those things. And then look at the first thing that you thought of in the first question and say, Lord, I want you to do in that thing what you did in the, in the thing you've already changed. Lord, today I am releasing my grip on my attitude on my action, on my emotion, on my stuff. I'm releasing all of it to obey you and to grow in holiness today by an action of staying awake, by an action of laboring, by an action of pursuing, by an action of obeying. I am pursuing you. Because the God that did the the thing in you that's already changed you wants to do that in you all the time. All the time. 
And so let him. And so right now, I just want you as the people of God to give God permission to make the changes in you. I don't want you to make vows. This is a very critical difference. See, making vows says, Lord, I'm never going to do this again or I'll always do this and I'm, I'm going to be better and I'm going to try harder and all that stuff. It's not going to get that done for you. What you need to do is say, Lord, I became a Christian. I became a believer because I trusted in your grace. And so now, Lord, the same grace that made me a Christian, I'm calling on, I'm trusting in, I'm clinging to, I'm relying on to make me holy. So just ask him to grant you the grace of repentance and the gift of holiness. And I am praying that this week that God gives you testimony after testimony of his conviction, of his encouragement, of his love, of his joy drawing you to something that is better. Something that is greater than that which you have clung to that has kept you from experiencing the full, quenching power of the holiness of God. So don't go home and fall back into the pig slop. Ask God to continue to work what He's working in you right now, to work it in deep, for it to take root, for it to grow and blossom and bring forth fruit in your life of new levels of holiness. Would you stand with me? We are justified and we are called to holiness because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. There's one thing you heard today, I want you to hear that. That it is all because of Jesus and not because of you. And if you successfully pursue holiness, it's going to be because of the grace of God. And every week we take communion together. If you're online today, I want to invite you right now to just get some acceptable elements to join us, if you would, for communion. And every week we take communion as a reminder that this is not about us. And this is not, this life that we've been given so freely and so lovingly is not about us. It's because of another that paid our sacrifice, that paid our debt, sacrificed himself, and gave us a life we could never have without him. Amen? The Bible tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and when he broke it he said this is my body given for you and in the same way also he took the cup after supper and he and and he said this is the blood of my new covenant drink it and then he said that we should continue to do this and that we should we should remember his death until he comes and why, why did he give us such a long thing? Because holiness is an everyday pursuit. And the best way to pursue holiness is to remember what Christ has already done. Amen? Amen. Because the power is his to, to become holy and the glory will be his. So I want you to come and, and receive the elements of communion again because of social distancing. Like last week, we don't have... Uh, servers. We've just got the individual cups. And so what I want you to do, I want to ask you uh, to do the same thing you do every week. Come down these side aisles, but I want you to to do that slowly and in a social distanced way. And we will um, take 
communion uh, together. As soon as you get your your uh, your elements, just go back to your seat. Don't take them yet, and then we will uh, we'll pray over them together and uh, take them together. Okay, so you're welcome to come now and, and receive the elements. And let's let's pray. God, thank you for the broken body of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice. Lord, you, your body was broken. And for us, in, in the light of the message that you've given us this morning, you, it reminds us that we uh, can be made whole in our minds, our thoughts, our actions, that you are uh, beginning your work of recreation in us. Lord, and, and that, that gift was purchased for us by your brokenness. You're recreating us. And one day we will stand before you perfectly holy, free from sin. God, not just in our reckoning through justification, but in actuality through the sanctifying work that will be completed in us. And so, Lord, we ask you to continue your sanctifying work in us uh, as we remember your broken body. Thank you. Let's take the bread together. And now, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood. Your blood that not only cleanses the the list and the catalog of sins that we had uh, when we first came to you, but the, the, the blood that cleanses us of our very sin nature. And it cleanses us of all of our transgressions, those that are buried deep in our past, those with which we've already struggled this very day, and those which will meet us with the dawn tomorrow, Lord. We, we thank you that your blood is infinitely powerful to wash away the stain of every sin, of every impurity, of every transgression, of every weakness. And so, Lord, we thank you for the power of your blood, the cleansing, redeeming power of your blood. And, Lord, we pray that its, its power would work thoroughly in us this week, Lord, that, that as we walk in the light, as you are in the light, that we will have fellowship one with another and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all sins. Let's take the cup together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. If you would just extend your hands in a receiving position. I want to, in the light of this message, I want to just speak a benediction over you from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, where it says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. We'll see you soon.